Hello there, I am Patrick Stroth, president of Rubicon M&A Insurance Services. Welcome to M&A Masters, where I speak with the leading experts in mergers and acquisitions. And we're all about one thing here, that's a clean exit for owners, founders, and their investors. We have a real treat today. I'm pleased to be joined by John Warlow. John Warlow is the founder of the Value Builder System, a simple software for building the value of a company used by thousands of businesses worldwide. His best-selling book, Built to Sell, Creating a Business That Can Thrive Without You, was recognized by both Fortune and Inc. as one of the best business books of 2011 and has been translated into 12 languages. John is the host of Built to Sell Radio, ranked by Forbes as one of the world's 10 best podcasts for business owners, something we aspire to here one day. In 2015, John wrote another best-selling book, The Automatic Customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. John completes the trilogy with his latest book, The Art of Selling Your Business, Winning Strategies and Secret Hacks for Exiting on Top. Well, John is a longtime listener of Built to Sell Radio. Uh, it's a real treat for me to have you here on M&A Masters. Thanks for joining me today. Well, thanks, Patrick. It's good to be with you. Now, John, before we get into the, the value builder system and then your, your latest book that came out, The Art of Selling Your Business, Let's set the table for our audience and give them a little context. Tell us about yourself. What got you to this point in your career? Well, I've started a couple of businesses that I've sold. I wrote about that experience in a book called Built to Sell, which goes back 10 years ago. Um, it's funny, we put together a little questionnaire for that book called the Sellability Score, which is a little like 10 question survey that identified whether you were ready to sell. And that questionnaire became very popular on our website for builttosell.com. And it got me thinking there was probably a, a business out there for helping entrepreneurs understand what drives the value of their company. So that became the precursor to what we now know as the value builder system. Uh, and, 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 uh, and that's been something I've been focused on for the last few years. Yeah. What, a lot of people that aren't involved in M&A all the time, you know, and, and I admit this was me, you know, six, seven years ago, was that when you think about acquisitions or mergers and acquisitions, it's always company A buys company B, you read about in the Wall Street Journal, these big, massive deals and so forth. The reality is M&A is a group of people choosing to partner with another group of people. And the objective is one plus one equals five or six. You can't get the human element out of mergers and acquisitions because it's, it's just what's driving is people and people. And so you cover this really elegantly with the art of selling your businesses. The issues with the human element, obviously, fear and greed come into it. And if you're not prepared, it can be a real traumatic experience. And so you kind of outline that. In, in your book in a step-by-step -step version. So let's start very first part. How do business owners even know when the right time to sell is? Well, it's a great time right now. <laughs> the M&A market is absolutely on fire. And that's in part, you know, driven by interest rates. Uh, interest rates are very, very low. And, and most of the deals that I think we're talking about today, the M&A deals, are really underwritten by debt, right? So the private equity group making the acquisition or the strategic making the acquisition is, is really the one that, that is making 
the uh, the thing happen with debt. And so when debt is cheaper, almost free, which is what it is today, uh, it, it makes it very, very easy for an acquirer to make money. So I think it's a great time right now, even though we're just coming out of, hopefully coming out of this pandemic and, uh, you know, some people have had businesses that have been uh, damaged by that process. I, I think that can be, to some extent, counterbalanced, if you will, by the, 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 the interest rates of where they're at now. You know, the other way to think about the, the, the question, which is sort of a glib answer to kind of when's the best time to sell is, is, is when somebody's buying, right? So when you get an offer to buy your business, it is a, a very unique moment because for that moment, you are in the driver's seat, right? You've got negotiating leverage. They've come to you and you're in, in the position of power. Whereas if you're flogging your business, shopping it, if you will, all of a sudden you, you're less uh, positioned for power. And I always remember the story of Rand Fishkin. Rand built a company called SEO Moz, which is uh, a software company to do SEO, basically, mm-hmm. search engine optimization. And Rand built it up to 5 million or so in revenue. And he'd been told that his business should be worth, given it the fact it's a SaaS company, around four times revenue. Mm-hmm. And so they were at five and he had a goal of getting to 10 the next year. So in his mind, he was like, next year, we're going to be worth 40 million bucks, four times 10 million in revenue. He gets a call out of the blue from a guy named Brian Halligan, who was at the time the head of HubSpot, which is an all-in-one marketing company. And they'd figured out that they wanted to add SEO. And Halligan said, look, you've done this amazing job of the SEO product. Why don't we buy you? And Fishkin said, okay, well, what do you have in mind? And Halligan said, how about 25 million bucks of cash and HubSpot stock? Now, that's five times revenue. That's a pretty good offer for any business. And, and even a SaaS business, which have high valuations, is still a great offer. But Fishkin had this 40 number in his mind. And so ultimately, he pushed back and said, it's 40 or nothing. And Halligan said, well, we can't do a deal. And Fishkin went away and instead of selling his company, he raised venture capital money and got into a whole bunch of different product lines. Unfortunately, many of them failed, started to suck cash out of the company. And at one point, the VCs got really worried about Rand himself. He'd kind of fallen off into a, it kind of spiraled into a point of depression when he decided, or the VCs decided that they should remove him from the board. So he became a minority shareholder in a company he didn't control. And I asked him on the podcast I did with him, I said, like, Rand, what was that like? I mean, is your is your stake in the company worth anything anymore? And he said, probably not, because the VCs invested with preferred shares. So they'll get their preferred return before Rand gets anything. And I followed that question up with a question around what that offer would have been worth, that $25 million of cash in HubSpot stock. Because HubSpot stock, in the meantime, has gone through the uh, through the roof. Up and to the right, yeah. Yeah, up and to the right. And uh, and he said, yeah, it would be worth close to 20, 200, excuse me, $200 million. And, and I tell you that story because I think the answer to the question, when's the best time to sell, is in many ways when somebody like Brian Halligan is buying. Well, I think this environment is ideal when you think about the number of there, there's a finite number of good companies out there to be purchased. Okay. However, the universe of buyers keeps getting bigger and you'd think that it'd be the opposite, but no, because when you consider there are about 4,500 private equity firms out there, more than half of those, the majority are are targeting companies under $50 million uh, in transaction value. 
they're competing with thousands and thousands of SPACs, uh, or excuse me, thousands and thousands of strategic acquirers. The newest development for larger companies are the special purpose acquisition corps, the the SPACs, that's the shiny thing out there. You also have thousands of family offices. And then you've got wealthy individuals who want to be just independent and go buy a company. So there's a universe of buyers out there. What do you think is that you attribute is one of the biggest mistakes that uh, owners make when they go get ready to sell? Well, I think you just touched on it really well, Patrick, and that is that they... You know, there is this incredible breadth of acquirers out there right now. And what I see is a lot of sellers get married to the idea of selling to a strategic, right? They've heard that a strategic acquire, big, big, you know, Fortune 500 company is is the is going to drive the highest valuation. And so they get sort of fairly myopic and, and it's got to be a strategic, it's got to be a strategic. And, and what that does is effectively takes your universe of potential acquirers from massive, all these PE groups that you describe and so forth, down to like a handful of companies. And that may sound okay until you realize that negotiating leverage in this, punching above your weight, if you will, is all about having multiple offers. And, and I, I go back to a guy I interviewed for the book, a guy named Arik Levy. So Levy had two exits. One was a bit of a disappointment because he got myopically focused on one acquirer. The other, he learned his lessons in creative competitive tension. So the, the, the businesses were in the same industry. They're in the locker space. So if you know anything about Amazon.com, you get you, you they, at Whole Foods, you got the Amazon lockers, right? Same business model, but Arc Levy did it in laundries. So laundromat would have lockers so that you could pick up your laundry after the after hours. And Levy built a, a great little business in laundry locker and he decided to sell it. He got one offer, did it himself, didn't hire a professional and got one offer. Accepted a letter of intent, 60 days went by, guess what? The offer starts retrading. They lower the price by 20%. Arc Levy, without another offer in hand, says, okay, fine, I'll take your 20% discount. Then they turn around and say, well, we thought we could get the money to buy your business, but we actually can't. So you're going to need to lend us some money to buy it. So then he ended up financing the deal. So lower money, so not a great exit. He then went to build another company called Luxor One. They put these uh, lockers in apartment buildings so people who buy online can get their stuff shipped and secure and stuff. But this time he learned his lesson. He was really flexible. He said, I don't, you know, we want to, in fact, go out to the marketplace. And he even went so far as to say, we don't even necessarily just want an acquisition offer. We'll accept an investment round. So he was very open to the structure of the deal, private equity group, strategic, et cetera. Long story short, he got five offers for his company being open to all different types of buyers. Three of them were investment offers. Two of them were acquisition offers. All five of them, when they originally came in at the letter of intent stage, were plus or minus 10% in terms of valuation. He then ginned one off the other, playing one off the other in terms of valuation. By the end of this kind of auction process, he was able to triple the value he got for his company, triple the offer that he got through just playing one off the other. I mean, compare that exit with his first. Right, and you see the difference between kind of myopically, you know, falling in, into the hands of one acquirer versus playing the field, including private equity, including you know family offices, including including strategics, as you described. There's a huge universe of folks out there, 
keep them all on your list, that's what gives you leverage. Well, that's a constant, I would say that's one of the core themes that you repeat over and over again in, you know, the art of selling your business is to go ahead and have multiple players in there because that's probably the best leverage that's available for a seller. Those who have leverage tend to tend to use it. And if, if you forfeit yours, you're in a lot of trouble. Now, uh, you've got a lot of common sense uh, advice on the mechanics, uh, you know, of, of dealing with negotiating terms and so forth. I want to touch on a couple of them because these can be, you know, stumpers, but when a company is going in to acquire another company, they're going to go through their due diligence process. And sometimes that's going to involve a request to, you know, speak to the target's employees or the target's customers. Okay. How do you handle that? Yeah. So first of all, I think when it comes to employees, I think you want to bucket your your employees into two buckets. You've got your rank and file employees who shouldn't really find out until you sell the business, until the you know the checks so called in the mail or in the, you know wired across. The other group is is your senior management team, two or three people who have to help you sell your company. Those folks are going to need to know your your for sale. And so when it comes to actually negotiating with an offer, I would hold back the, the, the rank and file employees until again, the check is in your account. The, the two or three senior managers will probably have to go to the negotiation, the management team meetings with you. And, and, and that's okay. The, the thing you want to avoid, of course, is people using the veil of an acquisition offer really just to scoop your employees, right? This happens a lot. I, you know, one of the stories in the book is, is a guy who, um, a private equity group who went and made a decision that they were going to roll up a category, an industry. And so they went and used a very superficial letter of intent to put under contract 80 different companies. And when you sign a letter of intent, of course, and I know you know this, Patrick, you, you give up negotiating your leverage, right? You, you, you sign a no-shop clause. So that company was effectively tied up. So they tie up 80 companies and they, they you know, go through the, the, the ceremony of meeting with the managers in an effort to do deal to deal. They had no intention of buying 80 companies. In fact, they only bought two of the 80. What do they do with the other 78? Well, they recruited the managers they met along the way. <laughs> and it's one of those horrible stories, but it happens all the time where the acquirer is using the veil, the so-called acquirer in air quotes is using the veil of an acquisition for no other purpose to find out your private information and, and your employees. So I think, I think you want to make sure that you've got a process in, in place to, to really validate the people you are working with, to make sure that they are closers. They do actually transact. They do make acquisitions, talk to other entrepreneurs who sold to that PE group or that strategic to find out if they um, if they have a reputation for closing because, uh, uh, because yeah, these games happen all the time. You really have to have professionals on your team. Why don't you talk about this? Because there are two things I think I'd love your opinion on. First of all, having an intermediary or an investment banker. And then if you talk about their role, and then also the other one you talk about, you describe it as your left tackle, which mm -hmm. is having a real savvy M&A attorney, not an attorney, general business attorney, but an M&A attorney. So Start with those two professionals and give me your thoughts. 
You're absolutely right. I wouldn't sell a business without an M&A professional. I think it's crazy. I wouldn't sell a house without a real estate agent. Of course, you can do it, but their job is to create competitive tension, right? In the case of Arik Levy that I just referenced, the Luxor One versus the the, the laundry locker, the difference was in many, in many cases, he hired an M&A professional. In the Luxor One deal, he had Trip Wolf, who's a sell-side M&A guy that ran the process for him, got the five offers. And the first example where it went poorly, he tried to do it himself. So it's, look, it's not a DIY project. The left tackle comes from the movie, The Blind Side, the book course by Michael Lewis, where he described when a quarterback rolls back in the pocket to a right-hand throwing quarterback, he kind of turns his, his back to the left side of his body. And of course, that exposes him to a 300-pound lineman coming to flatten him. And so the left tackle is the defensive player that basically protects the quarterback's blind side. And that's the description I used for the corporate M&A professional, the, the, excuse me, the legal uh, representation, the, the, the corporate lawyer who is a specialist in M&A. And, and their job is to kind of pump the brakes, right? The M&A guy, on your team is likely to kind of nudge you gent gently to accept terms and deal points, right? Because they, they get paid when a deal gets done. And your left tackle, the, the M&A attorney is there to kind of pump the brakes a little bit. And when it works, those two have a mutual, if not always amicable, but certainly a mutual respect for one another, right? Because they know they each are doing their job. And I think that that that's, uh, that's an important piece of the puzzle. You know, to go back, Patrick, to the earlier point you made, uh, which is this idea of using, uh, protecting yourself from a legal perspective. I, I just was triggered by one of the guys I put in the book. His guy's name is Arengzeb Khan. I think I'm pronouncing him, him right, his name right. But he built a, a business in the UK called eBookers. They are an online travel agency. And the most important, the way these businesses work is they get a commission, right? They get a commission from the hotel chains and the airlines when they book you know, uh, book revenue, kind of like Expedia, right? Yeah. And there's sort of four or five major online booking engines in the world. And the most coveted secret in this category is the commission rate. Because obviously, if you as Expedia know what Travelocity is paying on a, in terms of a commission rate, then you've got leverage, right? Well, in the story that uh, in in a uh, case when he sold eBookers, which is the Expedia of the UK market, um, he realized that the commission rate was his most coveted secret. But he took his business to market anyways. He got four offers. He learned later that two of the acquisition offers were not real. They were simply there to find out the commission rate. And and, and, and you say, well, you can't use that information. They sign an NDA. Sure, they sign an NDA. But if you know what the commission rate is, you don't have to out and out say that, but you know just how far you can push the airline until they break, right? And you don't ever have to reveal that you found that out through the M&A process. And so that's just a, uh, an example of why you need a really good uh, M&A attorney who can can really protect you along these lines. And it's a great balance that you have there where you've got your, your uh, investment banker that's trying to push the deal forward, getting you over the obstacles and possible little fears out there. And then you've got the cautionary kind of like the, the safety uh, uh, manager, the attorney push it back the other way. And they're constantly thinking worst case scenario. And, and the investment bank is thinking best case scenario just to get you to move forward. So it's, it's an interesting balance. I the, wor think the worst case, and you find you get this balance wrong, is when you hire a 
an attorney who is a generalist, no. right? Like the same guy or gal who incorporated your company, defended you on that like wrongful uh, dismissal suit or whatever, and says, oh yeah, yeah, we can do M&A, right? And they've done like one deal in the last nine years. The problem with hiring someone like that, although they may be your best friend and really, really, you know, hearts in the right place, they don't understand the M&A process. And as a result, they tend to have their foot squarely planted on the brake, right? Like they're like, I can't do anything that would expose my client to any risk whatsoever ever. And as a result, nothing gets done because the attorney doesn't know what market terms are, what realistic, re, you know, reasonable reps and warranties are, what are way outside market, right? And so you really need a really solid, experienced M&A professional and an M&A attorney to, uh, to do the deal for you. And it may not be the, the guy or gal who incorporated your company. Probably isn't. A absolutely not, because they're, they're going to be looking at disclosures in the reps and warranties. And what uh, you have to understand is that the seller, individually, personally, they, they can't behind behind a corporate veil. They are personally liable to the buyer if they make a representation or disclosure in, in that schedule to the buyer, buyer performs diligence, but you may not know everything that's there. You may have forgotten something. And then post-closing, if the buyer suffers a financial loss within the contract, they can come out after you and collect dollar for dollar and claw it back. And so it's a real big area of fear. What, what I appreciate, uh, and it, it hasn't been widely publicized on lower middle market sub $50 million transaction deals, there's actually an insurance policy that takes away that risk where the insurance industry will go ahead, they look at what the disclosures are, they look at what kind of diligence the buyer performed, and then they say, great, well, we've looked at everything for a couple bucks. If anything happens, we are gonna transfer that indemnity obligation away from the seller, and we're gonna take it over to the insurance company, and we'll, we'll absorb it. If the buyer suffers a loss, the insurance company will pay the buyer. So the seller, Yes, a clean exit. So if something does blow up that they had no idea about, it, you know, it gets taken care of. It also helps because it, it offsets any escrows or withholds because no need for an escrow or withhold if an insurance policy is collectible and out there. And it is a great development that's been out there. I know when we've, we've heard your, uh, your guests talking about issues on the diligence and the reps, that's a real big area of fear. Yeah, absolutely. Because look, I mean, you're selling your business uh, for freedom, right? And and the last thing you want is to have a an incomplete, or as you say, not a clean exit, right? Having that, I mean, you might as well keep control of your company. If, if you're not going to be fully out, why sell it, right? If you're if you're not going to have that sense of freedom, when I when I talk to entrepreneurs about why they sell their company, I think it comes down to this core need that I think all of us share in common, which is the desire for freedom. And they want a clean exit. And, you know, I, I go back to a guy named Joey Redner. Joey is another guy I featured in the book. He built a company uh, called Cigar City Brewing, brew pub in the beginning, and a brew brand, I should say, a, a specialty beer. And he built it up. He borrowed about 800 grand from his dad in the very beginning to build a brew uh, brewing facility. And a lot of money, very capital intensive business, but got it off the ground and it became really successful in Tampa Bay. People were buying the beer like crazy and it was a hit. So much so that he ran out of brewing capacity. He goes to the SBA and gets him to guarantee a massive loan to build out his brewing capacity even further. So he'd have you know like tens of thousands of cases a month or whatever he was selling. 
things are going well for a year or two more. And guess what? He runs out of capacity again. Now he's in hawk to his dad. He's got a massive bank loan. And the bank's coming to him and saying, Joey, we'll lend you the money. Just sign here, right? All of your personal guarantee in place to expand the production facility again. And Joey throws up his hands and goes, enough. I, you know, like, I feel like the, the, the gambler at the poker table who's just being asked, like, I just won five hands in a row and you're just asking me to put all my chips in the middle of the table again. Like, it's crazy. I won. And, and he said, I just wanted that sense of freedom to be out, to be out from under all this debt and all these obligations. And, and I've always remembered that story because I think that is the essence of what you get when you sell your company right, is you get that your first foot on the, the rung of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Like when you get a clean exit and you sell, um, like no one can take that away from you, right? You, you, you have, you don't have to worry about money anymore. And, and I mean, that doesn't mean you're not going to work. Most like Joey was 40 when he sold his company, right? He's going to have lots of other things that he does in his life, but he'll never be able to slip his foot off that first rung of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And I think, I think that's what we, you know, as entrepreneurs, that's what we all crave. And when you sell and the, and the owner can claw back half the value, you know, because you forgot to disclose something. I mean, it's, it's tragic. So I, I think it's a, I think it's a really important issue you raised. Well, I, we talked about before how you can maximize your value getting multiple bidders and some of the issues out there and improving your leverage and so forth. Let's just give one quick little reference to some of the things to be fearful uh, or just be aware of. And uh, it, it's really helpful because if you can spot these, spot these things coming, you're prepared for it and you can have the right response. Let's talk about, you know, what are some tricks that an experienced buyer could try to, to uh, apply against an inexperienced seller? What do you have to look out for? Just mention one of them. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, private equity companies will ask you to roll equity, right? So when a private equity company buys a business, they generally don't have management in place. They're financial engineers. They're not managers of companies. So they'll say, look, we love your company. You've done an amazing job. We're, we're going we're gonna to buy your business but we want you to hold on to 30% of your equity. We want you to roll that into a new entity. Now we're going to grow that new entity with lots of debt and maybe we'll you know, buy some more companies and then we'll go on to sell that in the future and we'll make a truckload of money. They call it the second bite of the apple. And, and it's a very overused expression, uh, which I can't stand, but in any event, that's what they say. So you might get that pitch. And in theory, when it works and I've seen it work, it can be spectacular for both the private equity group and as well as the entrepreneur who kept a rolled equity. The challenge, however, is that it doesn't always work. I'm reminded of a guy named Ryan Moran, who I just interviewed on my podcast, where he built a company and it was a supplements company to my recollection. And it was about $20 million of revenue. And he sold it, uh, I think it was 18 or 19 million bucks. So like a, a, a big number, big, big successful exit. That was the valuation. But he got 60% of his money up front and was asked to roll 40% into a new entity. And he thought, well, that sounds great. And they had all sorts of great plans for his company and, you know, but they wanted to bring in a new manager. So they brought in a new CEO to run the company after Ryan stepped down. Well, the CEO had no idea of how to run the company. He piled, the private equity company piled on a truckload of debt in order to try to grow the business and bring on, you know, pay the salary of this fancy CEO and all, you know, all the, 
Long story short, the company wasn't able to pay back the bank debt. The company ultimately defaulted, went bankrupt. Now, the PE company lost its money on that deal, but so did Ryan. The 40% of his equity that he rolled into the entity went to zero. And he was out of control because he was a minority shareholder in a company he no longer controlled. And so that's the downside. That's a you know, rolling equity, rolling a lot of equity is, is really, you know, it's a gamble in the sense that you are, you are not the majority stakeholder anymore, yet you've got a significant portion of your net worth in a company you don't really control. The dirtiest one I've ever heard is, and I've only ever heard this once, and so I don't think it's a common practice, but I did hear it once, that the acquirer, the private equity group, asked the seller to guarantee personally the debt the private equity company was taking on to grow the business after they sold it. Like, so here, I'd like you to buy my house. Um, and, and, and you're basically, the, when, when the seller is saying, uh, or the buyer is asking the seller to basically guarantee their mortgage, it's like the craziest thing I've ever heard. But again, there's all sorts of shenanigans that happens in that space, uh, and and just be mindful of the the equity carry and 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 for sure there's some great upside and it happens, but there's also some significant downside. And these are the types of uh, nuggets that are real helpful for uh, owners getting out there considering this as, as they go through this life changing uh, transaction. And I I will say that uh, the book is not full of you know, checklists and to do and step-by-step programs is a number of these real common sense advice points. And you go through the whole process from beginning the transaction all the way through to the end, including the exit, which is a great guide guidepost for them. And so define your ideal profile for your ideal client. Yeah, look, I mean, it's really someone who has a business worth somewhere between one and $50 million. So they're not startups. Uh, they're not dreamers. They are not, uh, what's that? Hobbyists. Yeah, they're not hobbyists. Uh uh, they are, they're running real companies uh, with employees. They have put everything on the line in their life to, uh, to build this company. They know in Joey Redner's case, everything there is to know about brewing beer, but probably not as much about the M&A process. And so we try to really help uh, owners uh, do what they do really well. Uh, in the case of Joey, it's you know <laughs> selling beer, uh, and so we can help them with the the actual kind of uh, punching above their weight, some of the negotiation theory around effectively selling. Now, as everybody's been listening to you, you're making reference after reference of all the people that you've spoken to in your podcast. I would sincerely invite people to go check out. Uh, John's podcast, Built to Sell Radio, is on iTunes and pretty much where all podcasts can be found. And it's, it's a great uh, entertainment set of stories about all of these things. And, and you get to see these real life experiences. And it's nicer probably hearing other people's experiences before you fall into some of the problems yourself. John, in addition to the art of selling your business, um, how can our audience find you? The best place to go is builttosell.com. And there's a little button at the top right corner. I think it says free gifts. 
you can download a bunch of free stuff, white papers, some videos on what drives the value of your company. So it's just uh, click on free gifts and uh, all, road, all roads lead to builttosell.com. <laughs> oh, great. Well, John Warlow, uh, again, absolute pleasure having you. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Patrick.